Ladies and gentlemen, today's Warner Archive Collection podcast is a time to be celebrating because it's spring, 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 and it is the final arrival at last of one of our most treasured classic films on Blu-ray, newly remastered and restored, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, one of my favorite musicals from the MGM glory days of its being a dream factory, and we are very fortunate to have one of the stars of the film, the lovely and enchanting Miss Ruta Lee, on the Warner Archive podcast today. Miss Lee, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. I can't believe what a glorious introduction that was. And uh, we will drop the miss right now, please, and just skip over to Ruta, okay? Well, of course. Thank you. So, Ruta, let me ask you, if I'm correct, I believe you were still in your teens when you found yourself in Culver City filming Very Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Very much so, George. I was uh, all of 16 and 17 years Years old, and you know, in those days when we were doing Seven Brides, we worked six days a week, not the five day a week that came along much later. And boy, it was a long time. I think we were almost a year on that film. Just dance rehearsals alone were six to eight weeks getting ready for the shooting. And the interesting thing is, we shot it in two processes. Both widescreen, which was then the dominant film media, and Cinemascope, which had just come into being. So it depends on which movie you're seeing, but each of them is just a tiny bit different. The shots were a little different. Maybe the breaths were faster or slower. Who knows? But what a glorious beginning for me. It was my very first movie. And when we went for the audition, my mother went with me, and she went across the street to the church that was opposite the casting office at MGM, and she got on her knees and prayed. And I'm not sure whether it was my doing a very good Lithuanian polka for the audition or her prayers, but I got the job. Well, we're <laughs> certainly glad you did, and I and I want to tell you, having worked at MGM a few years ago, that church, thankfully, is still there. Thank God it is still <laughs> there. A lot of prayers were laid down there. <laughs> so who did you audition for? Did you audition for Michael Kidd and Stanley Donnan, or was it yes, dance assistants? Yes. And, uh, and I tell you, it, what was very interesting, I, I mean, I jokingly said a Lithuanian polka. I, at the time, was still just coming out of high school. And, uh, of course, I thought I was an extremely fine dancer. I did a little ballet for them. You know, I had my little leotard on. I did a little ballet. And then I did a little kind of jazz, you know, they, what they asked for. And then they said, can you do something kind of folksy? Well, hell's bells, I'm Lithuanian, and it's tantamount to being Polish when it comes to making polkas. And I danced up a storm, and I think it's what got me the job. But, wow, later, when the cast was all put together, and there I was, smart-ass little me who thought she was such a good dancer, there in, in the bar, you know, the class that we did every morning at rehearsal, with some of the best dancers in America. I mean, from the ABT and, and New York Ballet and this and that. Oh, my God, I said, what am I doing here? Oh, my God, don't let me look like a dummy, Lord. Help me out through this, you know. But um, what a thrill. And then, of course, I was paired with Matt Maddox. And I had just seen him 
in, I think it was a musical about 14, or about Columbus, I can't remember. But he did this magnificent dance in leather boots and leather pants and with those beautiful tight buns of his and this whole thing and a whip where he jumped up on tables and, you know, brandished the whip. And, oh, my God, he was the sexiest thing I'd ever seen. And to think that I was paired up with him, oh, my heart almost stopped. What an exciting time for a young girl. And I think for all of us who were in it, we all became such good friends. I am struck by all the stories that I've heard and uh, people that I've met that worked on the film. We did a documentary about 20 years ago, which you were interviewed in, and it's on the disc. But I've gotten to know a lot of the people that were in the film, and they all shared the same sense of enthusiasm and doing something groundbreakingly new. And yet you also get a sense that these are real people. You don't feel like they're plastic movies movie characters. They feel genuine. And I think that's why the film has had such a lifespan where people still are discovering it. And it's new to new audiences and young people love it. And people that grew up with it loved it. And people that were seeing it for the first time when it came out still love it. It's just something so wonderful that you're a part of that. You and know, it was George, your debut. I give the credit for, I'd say, 80% of that to Michael Kidd. Because Michael Kidd said, we're not going to have lovely ballet dancers here, you know, leaping about in the snow or the, or the mountaintops or whatever. We're going to have chunky guys doing their thing, which is, I think, part of it. But he also had the wildest sense of humor I think I've ever come across. And he would not use ballet terms in, in choreographing. He wouldn't say three glissades and a pirouette to the right. He'd say three of those scrape-along things and a corkscrew on the end. <laughs> so you laughed so hard that you almost peed your pants in rehearsal. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of fun. And I panicked because... There I was in rehearsal, and Earl Barton, who was, uh, I was short, so he was my city boy dance partner, or town boy, I should say. And in the lifting me off of one of the, the saw horses that they had, he didn't set me down the way dancers do. He sort of plopped me, and I sprained an ankle. And I started to cry, and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to replace me. I'm going to get fired. They don't have time for me to heal, you know. But I sat in my chair with my foot in an ice bucket for a lot of it and watched the choreography. There were other things that I would have been used in that he was choreographing, but I couldn't be there rehearsing it, you know. But, Lord, he was funny. I, I remember. But that was Michael Kidd, and I think that was the joyousness of everything, is that we just had such a good time. He told us when we were shooting the documentary, but he also told me personally, because I had the great good fortune to spend a little time with he and his wife and his daughter when I was at MGM. And uh, I wanted to show him uh, an outtake that he had shot uh, with Gene Kelly for the film It's Always Fair Weather. He had a whole oh, yes. solo in that movie that was cut out, and he had never gotten to see it. And so we had put the rushes together and showed it to him. This is uh, about 25 years ago. Oh. Oh, I bet he was thrilled to he was He was blown away. He was just the nicest guy and so down to earth. And his description of choreography and how the dancing came into this movie matches exactly how you're describing your experiences with him. I, I just don't think I ever had a more joyous time. I, I of course, was in awe of him. 
I think one of the first Broadway shows I ever saw was Guys and Dolls. And when I stop and think of what he created in Guys and Dolls, you know, the the ballet uh, in the sewer and all of those things, he he took fine art like ballet and made it absolutely identifiable and acceptable to everybody in the world who never took a ballet class or thought of it as kind of sissy dancing rather than, you know, fabulous, chunky stuff. Uh, I think he was a miracle worker, but then wasn't... um, well, of course, it wasn't new to Stanley Donan that they had worked together before. But uh, how wise of him to select, even though I understand that Michael at first said, no, nah, I, I, I don't think that this is for me. Yep, that was the truth. He said, I don't see how these characters could be dancing. It's absolutely impossible. And Stanley convinced him. And Stanley was already a veteran director at age 30. 30 when he, 29 or 30 when they were shooting the movie but you worked with him again in another classic musical that unfortunately we don't own you were in funny face in funny face and i had a wonderful time on that because i got to be and he became kind of a mentor to me in some ways the wonderful fred astaire oh. uh, i later became very very good friends with his daughter and uh, Ava. Ava. And Ava lives here in the desert now, which is unusual because she always had problems with that fair, fair skin of hers. Right. So she lived back east and in Ireland, you know, to try and avoid the sun. And here she is in Palm Springs <laughs> now. Things do change. Yes. And uh, he was the, the lovely man that would say, you know, uh, Ava would call him and say, can you come over to dinner tonight, Dad? And he'd say, mm, I, I don't think so. And he'd say, well, Ruth is coming. And he'd say, oh, all right, I'll come. Oh, that's adorable. And, you know, I should have played my cards right. I might have been Mrs. Fred Astaire. That's true. <laughs> that's very possible. Damn, but damn, damn. Did, did Stanley Donnan hire you for Funny Face based on having worked with you in Seven Brides? Yes. I think so. That was always my supposition, and now I get to ask you in real life. I, I, I mean, I, I never <laughs> asked him if that was why, but I assume that it was why. Yeah, yeah. And and I loved working with him. I had a bone to pick with him, but I said, one of these days, I'm going to really let him have it. Well, with love, of course. At the same time that I was doing Funny Face, I was working in San Bernardino with the Civic Light Opera. And it was opening night, my first musical for them, and it was Kiss Me, Kate. And uh, I was playing Lois, uh, you know. I was going to guess that you were Lois Bianca. Yes, the the, the (laughs) soubrette. And, of course, San Bernardino, and this was before the full-time freeways, I think, was, uh, you know, a good hour and a half away. Sure. And... Here I am, opening night, and we usually quit working no later than seven, six, you know. And so I I'd, I'd had plenty of time to get there and so on and so forth. And it was 6, and it was 6.15, and it was 6.30, and it was coming on 7, and I'm practically in tears. But, of course, I can't say anything. I'm not going to say you've got to hurry up and let me go. You know, I'm too new in the business for that. And finally, they let me go. I called the producers, 
they arranged for the sheriff's department to pick me up at the San Bernardino County line and drive me in under red lights flashing <laughs> so that I could make my opening. I, I got in. My makeup was tear-stained. What the hell? <laughs> but I made it for opening night, and thank God, fairly decent reviews. Well, that's a memorable evening indeed, but it makes you part of, you know, being part of a film like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and a film like Funny Face, which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Funny Face was originally supposed to be an MGM movie. So why wasn't it? The reason it wasn't was that Paramount would not lend Audrey Hepburn to MGM. Uh. And so MGM sold the property, which was originally going to be called Wedding Day, and the use of Fred Astaire, the use of Stanley Donnan, the use of Conrad Salinger, the orchestrator. Basically, the MGM musical unit went to Paramount to make that movie. And I didn't know if you knew that. I did not know that. And thank you for sharing that with me. Boy, you know, it's interesting how all the studios have played such an important part of my life. And and I know you're over at Warner Brothers now, and I am sitting in a chair that was given me by a crew at Warner Brothers. I believe it was one of the Maverick crews with my name on it, and it sits in my bedroom. Oh, in I love Springs. that. And so it's keeping my tush comfortable and filled with loving memories, well, of every studio that I ever worked in. I know you did a lot of work here at Warner Brothers in many of our best television shows, but I want our audiences to know about your work with the Thalians and the philanthropic work that you did for decades with your best friend and a good friend of mine, dear Debbie Reynolds. And can you tell our audiences a little about that? Because you did remarkable work that I want more people to know about. Oh, I am so glad you brought it up because it's my favorite subject and it's probably what I've devoted the most time to. My husband has always said that if I had devoted as much time to my career as I did to the Thalians, I could have told Barbara Streisand to get off the world. <laughs> but uh, the Thalians was a group that was started, oh boy, in 1955, you do the math, by a group of young actors who got very tired of being called pot-smoking, sex-minded idiots that had nothing to contribute to the world. And they said, you know, we get together to party and have fun and... and uh, wine and dine, why don't we get together and do this on a stage around a piano and sell tickets and raise some money for a charity? So they sent out Jane Mansfield, God Love Her Soul, and another beautiful sex pot, uh, oh, the one from uh, Universal, oh, darling girl, I'm, I'm th- I'll, I'll think of her name. I'll call you at 2 in the morning and tell you, George. <laughs> anyway, um, they sent them out to take a look for what charity there was that they could adopt. And a month later, they came back to the next meeting and said, well, all the good charities are gone. But we found one that deals with emotionally disturbed children. And emotionally disturbed children, uh, kind of to give it in a metaphor, are, are kids like a rotten apple in a barrel. It can infect the whole barrel of apples if you don't take care of that one apple. So we took on the problem of mentally and emotionally disturbed children, later expanded it when we built the clinic at Cedars-Sinai, the first hospital building that went in, and we raised 
raise the funds for all of this by doing big, spectacular evenings, uh, black tie evenings with stars being honored not only for their brilliant gifts to the screen or the stage, but philanthropic contributions as well. And we, we, Lord, we saluted everybody from Busby Berkeley through Frank Sinatra, through Bing and Dorothy, through Liza Minnelli, through Whoopi Goldberg, extraordinary shows that we did. And how we did it, I don't know. Of course, the leadership of our fabulous Debbie Reynolds had a great deal to do with it. And then when she hit the road and went to do Irene on Broadway, it really became my full responsibility. But, uh, wow, what an organization. And so we dealt with mental health from pediatric through geriatric for some 60 years. And then finally we changed our focus and said, you know, there's a group that are being left out, and they are the young men and women who are our returning veterans whose mental health is really to be taken care of. These are the kids that are willing to put their lives on the line and not shoving dope up their nose or their arm, you know. And this is what needs to be taken care of. So now we're with UCLA and Operation Mend, but the Thalians is still going strong. We don't do our big glamorous events anymore because they're just too expensive. Yeah, of course. And it is very, very difficult, George, and I hate to gripe on your show, but it is difficult to pin down the stars of today the way we could go to Frank Sinatra or George Burns or anybody like that and and say, come help us, and they would. Right. You know, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby came and helped us. Frank Sinatra came and helped us. Not only did he help us, he paid for the whole orchestra. (laughs) Well, it makes me feel all the more fortunate that I was invited by Debbie to come to several of those shows. Oh, I'm so glad. And, And that was the first time I got to meet you. But now we're reintroducing ourselves via this podcast. Getting back to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I wanted to let you know, in case you didn't know, that our new Blu ray has both versions the widescreen and the cinemascope. Ah. So this way, audiences can get to see the slight subtleties in the different takes, but more impressively to me, how all the numbers had to be restaged to fit in the rectangular frame versus the more lengthy cinemascope frame. Exactly. And it, was, it was a very interesting experience and, and very time-consuming, as you can imagine. Yes. But, oh boy, you know, and at the same time, I've always loved this because Gene Kelly became a friend, and of course his now widow, wonderful Patricia Kelly, does a fabulous one-woman show where she has film clips of everything. But uh, at the same time that we were doing Seven Brides, which was kind of just a little toss-away film that they were doing, you know, Brigadoon was being shot on the lot. And I used to go over and watch, you know, Van Johnson and, and Darling Jean Kelly and, and the beauteous Sid Charisse and, and just look at all of this. And, of course, all the money at MGM went into that. Right. When I say all the money, I mean the major monies. 
Indeed. And everybody thought that this was just this cute little sleeper. Well, boy, was it a sleeper. Isn't it amazing how Seven Brides has gone on to become one of the top 100 films ever shot, and Brigadoon went by way of Albany, you know? Yep. <laughs> and the thing is, I, I've tried to do adjustments for inflation, but by my own personal calculations, I believe Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was the most financially successful of all MGM musicals. Is that, oh, that makes me so happy to hear that. The thing that is really, really surprising is this film stayed in international distribution to theaters till 1982. It never left foreign countries. And foreign countries were not as welcoming to American musicals because of the language barrier. But the storyline of Seven Brides and, of course, the dancing made it universal all around the world. And it still continues to carry that kind of weight today, which is why we wanted to restore it. I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because I have to tell you, I don't know if you were aware or privy to any of this stuff, but years ago, back in 1964, 10 years after Seven Brides, I was having this kind of tete-a-tete with Khrushchev about getting my grandmother out of Siberia and then later out of Lithuania. And I was this young twit who didn't know the dangers involved in dealing with with communist Russia at the time. Anyway, long story short, I got permission to go and to take my family to Lithuania, which was not done unless you were a high party, meaning Communist Party member. None of those satellite countries were visited by anybody from America. And I got permission to go. And when I got there, and when I talked to the uh, Mr. Khrushchev's interpreter on the phone, he said, Miss Lee, we know all about you here in the Soviet Union. We like your pictures. We like seven brides for seven brothers. <laughs> and we welcome you anytime you want to come. Just talk to your congressman. And, of course, I said, what the hell does my congressman have to do with my traveling in the Soviet Union? You know, I said, this isn't a matter of politics. It's a matter of the heart. And anyway, that's a long story. I got permission to go and went and saw my grandmother, and then six months later was allowed to return and bring her back to the United States, where she lived for two years, two months, and two days. And, oh, my Lord, the mail that we got from all of America. Americans are the most generous, loving, giving people, and I'm just so grateful to be a citizen of these fabulous United States. Well, we have a great country and we have a wonderful film industry that is an emissary of goodwill throughout the world. American How films right are loved. you are. I think people all over the world learn about us, our lifestyle, and who we are through film, and so I'm very grateful to be part of that industry. And we are very grateful to you, Ruta, for giving your time today. It's been just such a pleasure speaking with you and to celebrate the restoration and remastering of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers on Blu-ray. I would like to think that Johnny Mercer and uh, Howard Keel and all the people Gene that DePaul, left yes. us that aren't here to see this are smiling down on us. Yes, Gene DePaul, the wonderful composer, underrated composer, wrote such a beautiful score. And I'm thinking about Salt Chaplin and Johnny Green and oh, all the different man. people. And the, our producer, Jack Cummings. Jack Cummings, yes. Oh, my Lord. He was the 
he gave us little Christmas presents. All the brides got some lovely Bal de Tete perfume, and it was the first time I'd had a good, expensive French perfume. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, you know. What, what sweet memories. And there are not too many of us left anymore, you know. God bless him. Rusty Tamblin, of course, is still here. Yes, I had lunch and with him not that long ago. That's Wonderful right. guy. Oh, such a sweet guy. And um, let me think, who else? I, I, Tommy Rawl? To, Tommy Rawl is very much alive and in good health and a hell of a good painter. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of that fact. I he's, did know that, yes. He's, he's a, a fine artist. He's absolutely wonderful. And I see Norma Doggett when I go into New York. She gets on the subway and comes over to have tea or <laughs> martinis or whatever. <laughs> and and uh, I, I still see her. But unfortunately... Well, of course, Janie is still among us, thank God. Yes, and uh, I I don't know her very well, but I have a friend who's very close with her and checks in on her, and uh, she seems to be doing just fine. And, She's a beautiful, uh, beautiful lady that was a joy to work with. I thought, boy, if all stars are like this, this is the way to go. She was just a, 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 a precious girl. It was just a wonderful cast and a wonderful film, and it's timeless, and I'm so glad that you were a part of it and that we had this time together to talk about it. Thank you so much. God bless you, and may you have a wonderful day. And I want to thank all of our audiences for listening to this special Warner Archive podcast. Yes, and I, too, want to thank your audience for caring about the film industry, for looking for the best that there is, and George, thank you for providing it. Well, it's our pleasure, and we're so grateful to be making these films available to new generations so they will last for years to come. Thanks again. God bless.